Shadow Point by Gordon René. It is the 41st millennium. For more than a hundred centuries, the Emperor has sat immobile on the golden throne of Earth. He is the master of mankind by the will of the gods, and master of a million worlds by the might of his inexhaustible armies. He is a rotting carcass, writhing invisibly with power from the dark age of technology. He is the carrion lord of the Imperium, for whom a thousand souls are sacrificed every day, so that he may never truly die. Yet even in his deathless state, the Emperor continues his eternal vigilance. Mighty battle fleets cross the demon-infested miasma of the warp, the only route between distant stars, their way lit by the Astronomicon, the psychic manifestation of the Emperor's will. Vast armies give battle in his name on uncounted worlds. Greatest amongst his soldiers are the Adeptus Astartes, the Space Marines, bioengineered super warriors. Their comrades in arms are Legion, the Imperial Guard, and countless planetary defense forces, the ever vigilant Inquisition, and the tech priests of the Adeptus Mechanicus, to name only a few. But for all their multitude, they are barely enough to hold off the ever present threat from aliens, heretics, mutants, and worse. To be a man in such times is to be one amongst untold billions. It is to live in the cruelest and most bloody regime imaginable. These are the tales of those times. Forget the power of technology and science, for so much has been forgotten, never to be relearned. Forget the promise of progress and understanding, for in the grim, dark future there is only war. There is no peace amongst the stars. Only an eternity of carnage and slaughter, and the laughter of thirsting gods. Prologue The burning god sat immobile upon his smouldering throne, feeling the pulse and flow of the life energy of the place ebb through him. He had sat there for an eternity as mere mortal beings reckoned such things, dreaming dreams of battles past and battles still to come, and thinking thoughts which not even the longest-lived of his race's savants could ever truly fathom. There were others of his kind out there in the universe beyond, other fractured splinters of the same original being, dreaming their own dreams and feeling the life-flow of their own homeworlds pulse through them. So few of them left, the burning god lamented. Once there had been worlds upon worlds of them, and in his dreams he could still see them, as they once were. He saw a race at the height of its glory, revelling in its own power and majesty, capable of reforming entire worlds to suit its own purpose, able to reach out to probe the deepest mysteries of time and space. All gone now, it lamented. Now there were only these few poor remnants left, seeds drifting in the gulfs of space, a scattered diaspora struggling to hold back the tide of darkness, which would one day still rise to engulf all that had once been. But not yet, the warrior god knew. Not yet. Not while it, and those like it, still existed to protect all that remained of their race and hold back the darkness for just a little longer. Slowly, though, in a period... Reckoned over decades, the warrior god had been stirring in its sleep. There was war 
being waged amongst the stars it knew. There was always war. The lesser, younger races seemed to have been born both for and from war, but it knew that, somehow, this war was different. It heard the distant wraith-bone voices singing of war between the Monkai, corpse-worshippers, and the human servants of the Great Abomination, and the songs interrupted its dreams, in a way in which they had never had before. The Burning God looked into its dreams of the future for answers, and saw that for the first time in millennia it would soon be called upon again. Its dreams were trouble. It saw a convergence of many intersecting fate lines ahead of it, and after that its dream images of the future were too vague and indistinct to be properly discerned. Something lay just over the horizon of its perception, a shadow point, where many possible futures lay in wait, which not even its near-omniscient dream vision could bring properly into focus. For the first time in long, long millennia, the burning god knew something approximating fear, and its fear communicated itself through ancient wraithbone pathways to the living mind of its drifting homeworld. The wraithbone amplified the dreaming god's concerns and communicated them to the other drifting islands out in the darkness, the faint but growing alarm calls spreading through the far-flung diaspora like ripples across the surface of a pond. Slowly but surely, the first stirrings of a call to arms began amongst the closest neighbouring islands, and the burning gods' dreams of bloody and fiery carnage to come began to seep into the minds of its warrior acolytes. Within the god itself, the ancient furnace of its heart began to beat with greater strength as it pumped torrid streams of living fire through the god's immobile limbs, shaking off the languor of too many millennia of inactivity. The burning god was beginning to stir to life, and, when fully awakened, its wrath would be terrible to behold. Part 1. Conspiracies 1. They had been torturing the warp-spawn creature for six days now. Endless torture, without relief or remission. Using methods known only to the Inquisition's finest interrogator adepts. For six days now, they had been working in shifts to visit the miseries and abominations on living flesh that could not easily be imagined by most ordinary subjects of the Imperium. And, no matter what they did, no matter what manner of gruesome cruelties they inflicted, they had so far been neither able to kill it, nor to induce it to give up whatever warp-born secrets it had to tell. It was contained within a null field, in an adamantium walled chamber buried 300 metres below the surface. There was no way that the sound of its screams and babbling, blasphemous shrieks could even be heard outside the examination cell. And yet, somehow, some aspect of its agony seemed to transmit themselves up through the layers of armor-plas and adamantium shielding which entombed the deepest and most secret sublevel of the Inquisition fortress. Its screams echoed silently in the minds of everyone within the place, penetrating through whatever psychic wards and screens existed to protect the citadel and its occupants from the demonic intrusion. Only a precious oath-sworn few even knew of the thing's existence, and yet somehow all sensed its presence. There had been a wave of 
Suicides and murderous fights amongst the prisoners held in the ordinary detention levels above Horse New, and no doubt prompted by the invisible currents of psychic horror emanating up from the thing in prison down here. Even the hand-picked and veteran members of the senior inquisitor's retinue seemed shaken and unnerved by such close proximity to the entity. Remarkably, however, the creature's presence amongst them had had a most unexpected effect on the soul of at least one unwilling guest of the Inquisition. Two days ago, guards had come running in answer to the cacophony of screams and babbling pleas coming from the cell of Gorgio Nefaris, the so-called body-gatherer fiend of Bergamo, and captive of the Ordo Hereticus. For two months now, the renegade surgeon had held his silence, revelling in his own planet-wide infamy and answering with a mocking smile his interrogator's demands to recant his sins and reveal the whereabouts of the remains of his many missing victims. Now, however, the terror of the back alleys of Bergamo, the third largest city here on the Gothic sector world of Leith, had brushed minds with the thing held in the crypts below and had understood something of what true evil really was. He was currently to be found in a confession chamber, begging forgiveness from a stern-faced ecclesiarchy confessor, as he kept a small team of scribes busy with a non-stop, babbling litany of the details of his multitude of crimes. The size of this list, and the enormous and previously unsuspected number of his victims over the course of his century-long murder spree amongst the poor and destitute of Bergamo, had stunned even his interrogators. Horst had little doubt that this catalogue of atrocity, when finally completed and codified, would be enough to allow the local Arbites force to clear out several record rooms of files on hitherto unsolved cases and hopefully bring some kind of comfort into the minds of the families of Gorgio's many victims, a figure which had so far stood at some 12,000 dead, though the number was reckoned to possibly double by the time the repenting heretic had completed his confession. It was pitifully small solace, Horse knew. The confession, and eventually the execution of one lone heresy-ridden maniac, significant only in local or perhaps even planetary terms, but completely infinitesimal in scale compared to the tumultuous events happening throughout the Gothic sector. This was why he was here on this world, when so many possibly greater and more urgent matters called for his attention elsewhere within this war-torn sector of imperial space. This was part of the mission he had embarked upon when the High Masters of the Inquisition had first dispatched him to the Gothic sector eleven years ago when they had first suspected the stirring to life of forces within the Eye of Terror, when they had dimly perceived the first awful warp whispers of the despoiler's intent to unleash a new and deadly Black Crusade upon the worlds of the Imperium of Mankind. As he exited the elevator and walked down the corridor towards the single adamantium-reinforced and rune-inscribed door at the end of the passage, Horst recalled other passages from that mission and other stages on the journey which had led to this moment. Purgatory. Nine years ago, smoke, ugly and black, filled the skies above the world, casting a gloomy shroud over the devastation below. Horst had seen such scenes before, on a score of worlds across the Gothic sector, 
But with a growing feeling of dread, he already knew that this one was different from and far more ominous than the other chaos raids that had plagued the sector in recent years. With a feeling of apprehensive dread that grew stronger with every step he took, he climbed up the jagged and fused sides of the still-smoking giant impact crater, where the other members of the Inquisition survey team were already gathered. There was a small fleet of Imperial battle and rescue craft in orbit above the wall, all from various arms of Imperial service. But the inspection of this devastated area of the planet's surface had been claimed by the Inquisition alone, and Horst had imposed a 500-kilometre exclusion zone around the site. What lay here, or at least the evidence of what perhaps had lain here, Horst reminded himself, feeling that sense of dread grow ever tighter within him, was for the eyes of the Emperor's most trusted servants only. Standing with the others, he stared into the deep, still-smouldering wound which had been gouged into the earth. A glance at the map display on his data slate confirmed the almost unbelievable. According to the information, this 12-kilometre-wide gaping abyss of burning gases and smouldering, still molten rock had, until just a few short days ago, been the location of a heavily defended Imperium planetary base, home to thousands of Imperial Guard troopers, Adeptus Mechanicus adepts, and servants of the myriad of other branches of Imperial government. All across the planet's surface, other settlements and Imperial outposts had been struck and obliterated during the lightning-fast raid, but this, Horse knew, was the main object and target of the attack. Here, the fell touch of Abaddon, the despoiler, could truly be seen on the surface of purgatory, scarring the face of the planet forever. Horse looked down, and through the haze of burning sulphurous gases, saw the marks on the sheer sides of the crater, where, from high above in space, an orbiting warship had directed a coruscating beam of lance energy down onto the planet's surface, blasting away the topsoil and all of the fortress built upon that topsoil, and probing deep into the underlying bedrock of the planet. How many lance-armed warships would it take to accomplish such a task? The Inquisitor asked himself. He both marvelled and feared the thought of the massive outpouring of firepower that must have been required to carve such a wound through the planet's dense, rocky crust. And then a second, more troubling thought suddenly struck him. What if it wasn't a fleet of warships? What if all this were the work of something else, some terrible new addition to the despoiler's armoury which they had yet to encounter? He shook his head trying to dispel this gloomy mood. The potential ramifications of all that had happened here were bad enough, without adding to them with increasingly troublesome thoughts about some fictitious planet-blasting superweapon, now possibly in the hands of the Imperium of Mankind's most hated and implacable enemy. He looked again into the depths of the crater, rechecking the stream of info runes now scrolling across the face of his data slate. Despite the enormous energy stream that had been unleashed on the surface here, it was plain to see that it had somehow been expertly contained and targeted to an almost uncanny degree of precision. The overlaying surface material had been simply blasted away, yes, but after that the energy stream had been tightly focused as it drilled down into the planet's crust, obliterating dense rock and mineral deposits in microseconds as it pushed deeper down into the planet's core, almost as if it were probing in search of something. 
But probing in search of what? Horst wondered, already sickly suspecting the answer to his own unspoken question. Uh, drones and servos skull scouts have been dispatched into the fissure. We estimate it to be at least 18,000 meters deep. Reported Monomarchus, taking up his customary position alongside his Inquisitor Master. So, it may take them some time to make a full survey. Residual energy from the massive weapon discharge which created the fissure, along with local interference from some of the mineral and ore deposits in the surrounding bedrock, may also affect surveyor readings and delay a fully accurate understanding of what is and where once have been down there. But, queried Horst, silently fulminating against the habit apparently ingrained in all of the machine god's servants of taking seemingly forever to get to the point. Monomachus tapped rune keys on the brass facade of his antique data slate, pausing also to silently commune with the interconnected machine minds of his brother tech priests and their mechanical server devices, not only here on the planet's surface, but also those aboard the Inquisition light ship in orbit overhead. But already we have detected strong traces of psychometric radiation of a probable Xenos origin, emanating upwards from the fissure below. The traces are strong, but are already starting to decay. Hypothesis? demanded Horst, knowing that the tech priests were slaves to statistics, facts, figures, and long-established analytical models, and hated any kind of open, unsupported conjecture. It was Monomachus's ability to break free of such dogmatic behaviour and make intuitive leaps of informed opinion, which made him such a valued member of the Inquisitor's entourage. As I said, it may be some time before a fully accurate survey can be made, Lord Inquisitor, but it is my considered opinion that the spot we are now standing upon was indeed, until very recently, the hidden resting place of the Xeno artifact known as the Hand of Darkness. Horst's booted feet noisily crunched over the brittle, ossified material that carpeted the ground for hundreds of kilometres in all directions, the noise sounding like the sharp crack of lasfire in the still, silent air of Ornsworld. Reluctantly, he looked down at the bone chaff beneath his feet, picking out the details of tiny human-like bones over which he walked. They might easily have been mistaken for the remains of children, but Horse knew otherwise. He lifted his gaze and looked around him, seeing the endless bone litter, the piles of skull cairns dotted all across the horizon and the smoke plumes from the cremation pits which still rose up into the skies now over a week since the last of Abaddon's extermination legions had left this world. He heard the crunch of more booted feet behind him and turned to see the figure of Monomachus behind him. The tech priest distastefully gathering up his gold silicate robes in an effort to keep the long hems clear of the corpse material littering the ground. How many? asked Horst. There was a characteristic pause of several seconds before Monomachus answered. In that time, the Inquisitor heard the faint whirring of cogitator machinery within his Adeptus Mechanicus advisor's rebuilt metal cranium. Other than that, the only sound to be heard in this tainted place 
was the whistling insect drone of servo skulls as they drifted lazily over the scene, recording all evidence of the atrocity for the Inquisition's closed library archives, although some of the footage, suitably edited for mass consumption, would no doubt turn up in Imperial propaganda vidpic casts. Three or four million at this site alone, intoned Monomarchus, his typically black-toned delivery giving scant homage to the enormity of the scale of the atrocity contained in that number. Preliminary orbital drone scans show another twelve sites across the planet's surface of at least a similar magnitude, as well as possibly up to sixty other lesser massacre sites. Horst's only reply was a weary grunt. He personally had little fondness for the stunted abhuman breed known as ratlings, but they were part of the Imperium of Mankind and part of the Emperor's divine plan, and he regretted the deaths of so many of them, as he would that of any of the Emperor's loyal servants. Orn's world was the main home of the rattling subrace, and the recovery from this attack on the world would be long and painful, if indeed the planet and its population ever fully recovered at all from the decimation which had been visited upon them. For the next few generations at least, Horst coldly calculated, the Imperial Guard would have to make alternative arrangements for the recruitment of its quartermasters and sniper specialists. He was standing in what had once been the central square of the rattling settlement known as Samstown, but the anonymous, burnt-out ruins around him showed little discernible evidence of what had once been the settlement's main focal point. Horst had never been on Orn's world before, but he was familiar with its numberless, similar counterparts scattered across the length and breadth of the Imperium, and without too much effort, he could well imagine the look and feel of the place. Over there would have been the local administratum building, the centre of the Imperial bureaucracy on Orn's world, and facing it in almost rivalry, from the other side of the square would have been an ecclesiarchy temple dedicated to whatever form of the divine emperor the rattlings had been given to worship. No doubt around the fringes of the square would also have been clustered the headquarter buildings of many local provincial trade guilds and merchant houses, since rattlings were nothing if not enterprising and industrious in the acquisition of wealth and material comforts. All of it was gone now, swept away in mere hours as the gaze of the despoiler fell upon this tranquil and unremarkably ordinary backwater imperial world, located well away from the front-line planetary systems and main attack routes leading out from the Eye of Terror. When his vox crackled into life, Horst easily recognised the brief series of staccato identity code blips hidden within the seemingly random-sounding burst of radio static. Horst here, where are you? And what have you found, old friend? He answered. The voice which answered was typically gruff and irreverent, Half a century of dispensing the Empress harsh and often brutal justice to the subjects of the Imperium had done little to improve the senior arbitrator Haller Stavka's notoriously blunt manner. In the hills, Inquisitor, about sixty kilometers northwest of your position. It took a bit of doing, but we finally got one of these little bastard rants to act as guide and lead us to the site. No wonder the hereticus could never find the place. The woodlands are so dense up there. And there's so many deep ravines and dead-end canyons that you could spend a lifetime crawling through these bloody hills and never find anything. It wasn't so hard to find the way as we got closer, though. After a while, we just followed all the damned buzzards in the sky above us, and they led us straight to it. And 
Horst fought to quash the tight, underlying tone of apprehension in his question. I say that for these little half-pint bastards. They must have put up a hell of a fight defending the place. Not that it did them any good in the end, of course. We found them all over the place, but the ones who were still alive at the end made their last stand in the inner temple part of the cave system. The Xenos Artevert. Again, Horse struggled to control the anxiety in his voice. There was a pause for, before Stavka replied, although Horst already knew what the answer would be. Gone, Inquisitor. Just like purgatory. The door at the end of the corridor opened, and Horst saw the stolid figure of Stavka emerge from the interrogation cell beyond. Even though he was out of uniform and wore only leather breeches with a simple rough-spun tunic and a belt with holstered bolt-pistol sidearm, there was little mistaking him for anything other than the capable and veteran servant of the Emperor's law, which he had been for all but the last two decades of his life. From the imperial eagle emblem branded into his shoulder, to the grim, impassive fix of his jaw, to the rippling muscles beneath the surface of his scar-crossed arms, this was clearly a man, well used to the often violent imposition of the Emperor's justice, a loyal and capable servant of the Imperium, who would not flinch in the face of whatever task was required of him. Even so, Horst could see the anxiety written across the arbitrator's uncharacteristically pale features. Stavka had been supervising the interrogation of the warp-spawn thing for over 36 hours now, and the strain on the man's face was clearly evident. Once again, Horst silently asked himself, for perhaps the thousandth time, if he was truly justified in taking such an extreme course of action. The creature's very presence here was an abomination, he knew. It was an unnatural, tainted thing, and the corruption it carried could potentially spread further, much further indeed, than this time and place. Stavka nodded in salute to Horst as he met the Inquisitor at the entrance to the interrogation chamber. It's been asking for you, Inquisitor, he said simply, by name. Horst! Hiss the demon thing in undisguised pleasure, one of the torture-inflicted wounds in its throat, splitting open wider and warping to form a crude mouth. Why haven't you been down here to see me earlier? I've been bored waiting for you. You should be more careful with your choice of minions. These ones here make for such dull company. A queer, bubbling laugh emerged from the ruin of its face. <laughs> and it writhed in pleasure, straining against the bindings which held it down onto the pitted, filth-stained surface of the interrogation slab. Its skin was crisscrossed with scars and open wounds, some of the wounds horribly opening and closing in sink with the creature's mouth as it talked. Something that wasn't blood bubbled hotly out of the torture openings in its body. Its skin was blackened and charred in those portions, whether mystic binding wards and glyphs had been carved or tattooed into its flesh. Beneath the tight, stretched drum of its skin, the musculature of its unnatural body seethed and broiled in urgent agitation. Other than the sick laughter of the warpspawn, the only other sound in the chamber was the droning chanting of the chorus of free Inquisition-approved ecclesiarchy confessors as they endlessly recited prayers of protection and the sacred words of the litanies of binding, 
One of them swung an incense burner filled with potent and blessed unguents in a vain attempt to dispel the vile, hot reek of the thing, which filled the air in the close confines of the underground chamber. And Horst silently gave quick thanks for the rebreather implants inside his throat and nostrils as he leant forward to confront the demon creature. You know me, Wapspawn. It laughed again, a hideous, high-pitched, almost childlike giggle. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps not, noble Inquisitor Horst. Perhaps we met during your famous scouring of Cato. Or perhaps it was earlier than that, during that incident in the tunnels beneath Pizazzo. Horst visibly flinched at the mention of the so-called Hive of Damnation. Not even his brethren in the innermost circles of the Inquisition knew the full facts of what he had seen and endured in that hellish network of underhive passages and crypts, and he doubted that anyone born in the last century or so even knew the name of that once most infamous of hive cities, so rigorous had been his ruthless subjugation of the full facts of his investigation there, and the forces it had stirred up. The demon thing cackled in delight, and Horst angrily cursed at himself, realising that, in failing for a trick that even a novice interrogator apprentice might have avoided, he had allowed the creature to open up a possible weakness in his mental defences. Wapspun, is that all you have to offer me? he said, deliberately putting a heavy, sneering tone into his voice. Half-truths and lies, vague hints of ancient events of no interest to anyone in these last hundred years. You disappoint me. I thought even a minor warp-born such as you could have done better than that. Again the creature cackled, clearly relishing the encounter. Ah, but Gideon, isn't that why you had me summoned? To hear the whispers carried on the currents of the war, to know the shape of the future, to learn what plans the despoiler has been weaving all this time. Horst's expression was stony and impenetrable, betraying no hints of the thoughts which lay behind it. But whatever the demon was searching for, as it carefully studied his reaction, somehow it found it. It laughed in satisfaction forming new mouths to further express its hellish delight. Ah, yes, the despoiler who stood before us as the walls of your precious corpse emperor's palace came tumbling down before them. Abaddon of old, who still desires above all else the prize which was denied to him and his master, those ten thousand years ago. He's come again, Gideon, out of the eye of terror, out of the place which you cannot and should not dare to try to imagine. And all I see for you and the other servants of the corpse emperor is a darkness of fear and futile sacrifice. Enjoy what time you have left, Gideon. It laughed, for the despoiler's plots are nearly done, and soon these worlds you cling to so tenaciously will all be gone. Horst was turning angrily away even before the last echoes of the creature's mocking, multi-voiced laughter had died away. Have the chamber sealed, 
and leave this thing here to rot, he instructed Stavka. Let us see if it's still laughing in a thousand years' time, cut off from the wharf, bound inside this body and encased within a hundred tons of reinforced rockcrete. He took four steps, perhaps two more than he had expected, when the demon creature's voice shrilly rang out from behind him. The sleepers will be awakened. The talismans of all. That is what the despoiler seeks here. And oh yes, Gideon, just wait and see the light that will shine forth from those pretty baubles. Your day will come. The six will become one, and then all shall fall together. It screamed to itself in mad laughter. <laughs> and then started to babble in a confused chorus of voices. The printer mechanism of the cogitator device set up in a corner of the room clattered noisily as its auto-transcription abilities strove to keep up with the wild stream of gibberish and prophecies fed to it from the audio receptors of the servo skull monitors hovering above the interrogation slab. Later on, Horst and Monomarchus would spend long hours going over these transcripts and the accompanying vid-picked records of the creature's interrogation, but Horst knew that such second-hand evidence was no substitute for actually being here and facing the thing, listening to the fear and hate in its chorus of voices. He leant closer, weary of some warp-born trick from the thing imprisoned on the slab, but keen to pick up more of the pattern he was beginning to discern. Amongst the torrent of nonsense words, the demon was now screaming in various different-toned voices. A second's concentration, a clearing away of all the extraneous gibberish, using a mental trick which Monomarchus had taught him, and suddenly he heard the strain of prophecy amongst the stream of demonic gibberish. Fulares, Anvil, and Fear, trilled the demon in a grotesque and childlike sing-song voice, repeating the couplets over and over to itself. Rebel, Shandlegast, and Brigia, the day will come, six become one, all shall come together. Stavka, too, had heard the demon's words and instantly grasped something of their meaning. Volaris, Anvil, and the others, he started. They're all Imperial worlds, where... A sharp look from Horst cut him off. At the Inquisitor's silent, urgent gesture, he quickly joined Horst in the passageway outside. Let it babble on until it's finished, but I think we've already heard the best of what it had to tell us. The one-time Arbites officer nodded grimly in agreement. And after that, he asked, looking questioningly at Horst, as we agreed beforehand, said Horst, looking his subordinate straight in the eye. Maximum containment, nothing said or done in that room, leaves this place. Stavka nodded in understanding, his hand unconsciously shifting towards his holstered bolt pistol. He saluted briefly and turned and re-entered the room. Horst's thoughts were deep and troubled as he made the journey back to the elevator platform, which would take him back up to the main levels of the Citadel and forever away from this tainted place. The summoning of the demon would surely damn him in the eyes of many of his fellow Inquisitors, the so-called Puritan faction, who zealously followed the ancient maxims of imperial dogma to the very letter. It was, he admitted, a dangerous and 
desperate thing to do, an act which was, at best, an admission of his failure to divine the plans and purposes of the enemy by any other means. What he was about to do next would, he judged, leave him equally damned in the eyes of others within the Inquisition. Talismans of vile, he murmured to himself, repeating one of the things the demon had said. He did not fully understand the true import of everything the demon had spoken of, but already his worst suspicions were deepening, and he recognised at least part of that phrase. Vol. When the High Lords of Terror had dispatched him here to the Gothic Sector to investigate what had only had then been a series of bewildering, if seemingly random attacks by Chaos Raiders across the fringes of the Sector, he had little imagined the strange and terrible places the course of that investigation would lead him to. Now, as the forces of the Despoiler broke out of the Eye of Terror and plunged all of the Gothic Sector into ferocious, full-scale war of a level not seen since the time of the Great Heresy, his investigation into the enemy's true purpose was nearing an end, and this last stage of the journey would take him in a new direction and possibly towards the strangest and most dangerous encounter of all. Vol, an Eldar word, one of their damned alien heathen deities he knew. Well, and this was all over then. If the fanatics of the Ordo Malleus don't get me, he thought to himself, their brethren in the Ordo Xenos most assuredly will. The moment of humour was short-lived. As he entered the elevator and activated the command room for the surface levels, he could already hear the first bolt pistol shots ringing out from the place he had just left. Days later, Horst and his entourage pushed their way through the bronze doors, entering the Lord Admiral's strategium chamber beyond in a clash of heavily booted feet and weapons on armour. Navy armsmen guards raised the blunt-nosed barrels of their deadly shock cannon weapons in sudden alarm, but were quickly quelled into submission by the sight of the Inquisition emblem upon Horst's carapace-armoured chestplate, as well as by a warning growl from Stavka and the rest of Horst's bodyguard retinue, veteran warriors gathered from half a dozen different branches of the Imperium armed forces. Horst took the scene in with a glance. A group of Imperial Navy officers, the proof of their various exalted ranks indicated by the colourful plumage of gold braiding and glittering medals decorating their dark blue uniforms, stood around the spinning strategium globe at the centre of the room. Around them were waiting phalanxes of adjutant officers, scribe adepts, munitorum officials, tech priests and even... Standing to one side in the wide chamber, the distinctive crimson and gold robes of a cardinal prince of the ecclesiarchy, attended by his own small, courtly entourage of followers. All eyes were upon Horst and his group, many navy officers openly gawping in surprise at this unforgivable breach of protocol. Only one figure amongst the cluster of senior navy personnel gathered around the hologram display, failed to react or show any sign of alarm at this unwarranted invasion of the very centre of Battlefleet Gothic Command. The man, a tall and elegantly thin naval officer, wearing the resplendent uniform of an admiral of the Segmentum Obscurus fleet, continued to lean forward in inspection of the strategium display, staring in close concentration at the complex ballet of planet and battle squadron runes projected across the three-dimensional map of the Gothic Sector. 
He seemed to be caught up in deep contemplation of some remote and complex long-range strategy equation, the workings of which only he could truly fathom. The flickering lights from the display played across his face, reflecting off the trademark cyber device implanted in place of his missing right eye and throwing his distinctive hawk-like features into stark relief. It was a face now familiar to the inhabitants of every civilised imperial world within the Gothic sector, from the endless propaganda vid-picked casts which had become a feature of daily life since the start of the war. Not even the lowliest rating or indentured slave worker aboard any of the hundreds of Imperial Navy warships under his command would be in any doubt about the figure's identity, even without the magnificent diamond-inlaid and gold-woven rank sash he wore across his tunic breast. "'My dear Horst,' said Lord Admiral Cornelius Ravensburg, in the tell-tale clipped accent of the hereditary Navy aristocracy class of Cipramundi. Always a pleasure to welcome a member of the Imperial Inquisition aboard my flagship, even if the visit is both unannounced and unexpected. I take it you're not here to check anything as mundane as mere naval strategy. The voice of the commander of Battlefleet Gothic concealed a dry, slightly mocking tone. It had been five centuries since the Inquisition had conducted a merciless purge of suspected and widespread seditious elements amongst the senior officer cadre of Segmentum Obscurus, but such events lingered long in the memories of the institutions of the Imperium of Mankind, and there had traditionally been a great deal of hostile resentment to the agents of the Inquisition amongst the upper echelons of Battlefleet Obscurus. Horst sent Stavka bristling in anger at the Lord Admiral's tone, but Horst himself knew that this was not the time to dwell on any of the petty resentments and rivalries that existed between so many branches of the Imperium authority. He bowed slightly in a modest deference to Ravensburg's rank, and when he spoke, his tone was polite and conciliatory. Uh, forgive the intrusion, Lord Ravensburg, but I must speak to you most urgently. What I have to tell you is too precious to be trusted to any courier vessel or astropath communication, and involves vital information concerning the enemy's underlying motives in launching their assault upon the Gothic sector. Motives? We already know all about their motives, Lord Inquisitor, said one of the other Navy officers, looking disdainfully at Horst and his entourage. It was Ravensburg's chief adjutant, Commodore Admiral Caponis. Hurst had heard that the Commodore had been a brave and fearless ship's captain, and now he had the proof, for even here at the very heart of Gothic Sector Naval Command, it took a brave, if perhaps rash man, to stand up against the authority of a Lord Inquisitor Emissary of the High Council of Terror. The Navy Commander stared Horst in the face as he continued. We face another Black Crusade, this much we know. Both the Inquisition and the High Lords of Terror have confirmed this, and the Crusade's motives are no different from the previous ones which have assaulted the Imperium for the last ten thousand years. Wanton destruction of Imperial worlds, the defeat of the Emperor's armed forces, the overthrow of Imperial order and the subjugation of the Emperor's subjects. These are the only motives which count in the minds of our enemies. Twelve times before the Imperium has faced and withstood such assaults, this time with the Emperor's grace and with the forces under the command of the Lord Admiral, shall be no different, no matter how many planet-killer weapons the enemy may possess. The despoiler 
and its heretic lackeys will be defeated and sent back into their eye of terror vault hole to lick their wounds for another thousand years. Yes, a brave man. The Imperium needs more like this one, thought Horst. Realising that this was neither the time nor the place to impose the full crushing weight of his authority upon Capanus and the other loyal servants of the Emperor assembled here. He would need the cooperation and trust of men such as this in the days to come, he knew, and he needed to make allies of them, not enemies. So I pray, Lord Commander, said Horst, bowing in the man's direction. Men like you? My two assumed that we were facing a black crusade, not a mere series of raids as we first assumed. However, he continued, directing his gaze towards Ravensburg and deliberately bringing a more authoritative tone under his voice. I now have good reason to believe what we are witnessing is something else, part of a larger and hidden stratagem which could herald something far greater and more terrible than any Black Crusade. He paused to allow his words to take effect, hearing the muted gasps and quickly stilled utterances from amongst the throng of Navy officers. When it continued, his next words were aimed solely at Ravensburg. The despoiler moves in shadows and lies, my lord, hiding his secrets within other secrets, and his plans are already far further advanced than we could almost fear possible. We must act soon to counter him, or else we risk losing far more in this war than the entire Gothic sector. Horst locked eyes with Ravensburg, holding the Lord Admiral's gaze for a moment in a long look which communicated much about the Inquisitor's mood of deadly earnestness. Ravensburg paused for a moment, holding the other man's gaze, and then spoke. Tell me what you'll require, Lord Inquisitor. Then I will do everything in my power to make it so. What I have to tell you is for your ears only, Lord Admiral. Ravensburg nodded, and made a curt gesture of dismissal to his staff. Gentlemen, leave us, if you please. Both men waited as their entourages and attendants, together, totalling over two hundred in number, left the strategium chamber. Stavka was the last to exit and would stand guard at the doors, permitting no one to enter until he had received the correct Vox code signal from Horst. Ravensburg waited until the doors had been swung shut before turning to look expectantly at Horst. Horst began to talk. When he had finished, some three hours later, the nature of the things he had told Ravensburg and the conclusions the two men had come to would change not only the course of the Gothic Sector War, but also even, possibly, alter the fate of the Imperium itself. 2. With a rumble like the voices of angry gods, the two metre-thick blast doors ground open before Cephas, permitting him entry into the War Master's throne room. The squat, hulking shapes of the two demon-possessed dreadnoughts on either side of the entranceway turned towards him, emitting low, electronic snarls of warning. Blood-slicked servo-motors hummed and deadly heavy bolter weapon arms were aimed in readiness at him. Flickering pencils of red light played over Cephas as the dreadnought's targeter senses zeroed in on him and the Chaos Sorcerer felt cold, inquiring tendrils of demon thought probing at the surface of his consciousness. His fanged lips formed and spoke a word of power, and with an angry mechanical growl of what sounded almost like disappointment, the demon guardians of the entrance to the War Master's throne chamber retreated back to their guard posts on either side of the doorway. Enter, Seophus of Eidolon, intoned the cold, mocking voice of Abaddon the Despoiler. 
and be welcome amongst us. Cephas shuffled forward, the thick, flesh-fused mass of his left leg dragging heavily behind him. He was a champion of Zench, and he was here at the Warmaster's summons as a one-time commander of one of his master's legion armies, but somehow he sensed that something was strangely amiss on this occasion. Fear flickered through his mind, and the dark, twisting thing within him, that part of him which he had long ago offered up to the Lord of Change, lapped eagerly at such thoughts, relishing the taste of his terror. He moved towards the Warmaster's throne dais, aware of the many eyes upon him. This was the first time for more than four years that he had been permitted into the Warmaster's presence, and he was keenly aware of the suspicious glances and whispered sniggering from amongst the groups of courtiers flanking the procession way leading towards the despoiler's throne. There were many old enemies of his here, Cephas knew, long-time rivals, and also more than a few former allies whom he had been happy to use and then ruthlessly discard during what had been a swift and deeply satisfying ascent up through the ranks of the despoiler's warlord Carter. And then, four years ago, had come the invasion of Hellier IV. It had been Cephas who had first suggested the strategy of unleashing terror fleets on the Imperial worlds within the Gothic sector. It had been Cephas who had cast the war prunes and declared the omens favourable for the attack on the world of Hellier IV. And it had been Cephas who became the object of the despoiler's wrath when the invasion fleet and three entire Chaos legions of troops had been all but annihilated by the Imperium fleet which had unexpectedly arrived to defend the world from the Warmaster's attack. It had all been the fault of that fool Varro, of course. It had been he who had led his fleet straight into the jaws of the Imperial trap. But Varro was gone, vaporised along with his flagship, the Lord Seth, during the battle. And the fury of Abaddon's displeasure had fallen solely on Cephas alone. The sorcerer knew that he had been fortunate to survive the experience. The War Master did not tolerate failure, and the normal penalty for those who disappointed him was to be consigned to an eternity of suffering as flesh fodder, doomed to serve as the physical vessel for a warp demon. There were many such demon possessed creatures serving throughout the ranks of the Despoiler's forces as commanders of his Chaos Hordes, as navigators aboard his warships, using their mystic demon sight to guide his fleets through the warp, as familiars for his sorcerers and as advisers within his own throne room, offering the Warmaster whispered counsels that came direct from the great powers of the warp themselves. There was one such creature present here now, hunched at the foot of the steps of the Warmaster's dais, drooling black slime from between its bloody lips, as it strained against the heavy, rune-marked iron chain around its neck. Growling in discontent at its imprisonment, chained as it was to the stone slabs of the dais steps and trapped inside a too-weak physical shell and cut off from the limitless freedoms of the warp. In a sudden flash of unwelcome prescience, through his own warp-given mystic powers, Cephas, for a moment, saw his own face, reflected in the creature's shifting features, reminding him that there was still an agonised vestige of the body's original human occupant and trapped in there with the demon thing's spirit, and reminding him again of just how fortunate he had been to escape a similar fate. As he approached the Warmaster's dais, 
He looked around quickly, spotting the figure of his benefactor standing in the shadows behind the throne. Zarafiston was Abaddon's chief lieutenant and personal chaos sorcerer. He had also been Seophus's mentor. It had only been through Zarafiston's personal intervention that Seophus had been allowed to escape the awful fate that would otherwise have been his due punishment for failing the Warmaster. Seophus searched the face of his one-time mentor and patron for any flicker of acknowledgement or clue as to why he had been summoned back to Abaddon's court after four years in exile amongst some of the most obscure and far-flung reaches of the Warmaster's domain. But all that met him in reply was the carefully guarded blank gaze of the elder sorcerer's hooded eyes. After millennia in the service of the despoiler, the chaos sorcerer was a master in keeping any sign of his true feelings or motivations well buried. Cephas secretly knew that Zarafiston bore little love for the despoiler and suspected that his former master's ambitions went far higher than merely being content to serve as Abaddon's pet sorcerer. Zarafiston was not alone in this regard. Many before him had plotted in secret against the Warmaster, and the husks of their demon-devoured remains were there for all to see, hanging around the walls of the vast chamber alongside all the other captured war banners and heraldries of thousands of Imperial Guard regiments and more than a hundred Space Marine chapters, mute evidence of the Warmaster's victories over his enemies. No, Cephas knew as he painfully threw himself to his knees and bowed in supplication before the figure seated on the throne. Abaddon the Despoiler, Warmaster of Chaos, Commander of the Black Crusades and heir to the glories of Horus, was not an opponent to be underestimated. That was why this shameful display of abeyance was necessary. It was the only way to find the path back into Abaddon's favour and into the ranks of his warlord commanders. There were many others here, who harboured the same secret ambitions as Cephas and his master, Zarafiston, who were not content to accept the rank positions within the legions of chaos, which Abaddon had already deemed was the highest position that any of them would ever attain within the service of the powers of chaos. There were many here who were not content to merely serve, but wished to rule instead, and Cephas was one of them. He would not waste this opportunity, he promised himself. He would carry out whatever trifling and unworthy task the despoiler required of him, and then he would be free to reclaim his place amongst his peers, free to plot and scheme amongst those with similar ambitions to his own. There were many within the legions of chaos who considered this assault on the Gothic sector to be a foolhardy and dangerous venture. They whispered that the Warmaster had been led astray by false prophecy voices within the warp, and that after ten thousand years the heir of Horus was finally losing his grip on power, that this warp should have been won by now, and that, with another and more able Chaos Legion commander seated on the throne of the Warmaster, it still might not be too late to salvage the damage done by Abaddon's endless schemes within schemes and private vendettas. Sometimes such whispers reached the ears of the Warmaster himself, and he was able to trace them back to their source. The remains of such unfortunates were still here for all to see on the walls around the throne room, so Cephas was careful to mask his thoughts from Abaddon's all-seeing gaze and show the Warmaster only the most fawning, unquestioningly obedient facade as that presented by all the rest of the despoiler's witless and craven lackeys. 
So, mindful of what was expected of him, Cephas prostrated himself before the War Master's throne. It is my pleasure only to serve you and the powers of the Warp, War Master, he dutifully intoned, not daring to raise his head until Abaddon had spoken. Indeed, came the reply, in a disdainful voice containing less warmth than the chill depths between the furthest stars. Rise, loyal Cephas, and hear why we have at last sent for you again. Cephas rose to his feet and looked up at the figure on the throne. The eyes of Abbot on the Despoiler, as dark and fathomless as the outer gulfs, stared back at him, catching him in their cold gaze and seeming to strip him bare of all defences. For a moment, Cephas wanted to confess his many disloyalties and those of others to the War Master. But then his mystic training took hold once more, and he managed to break the spell, looking quickly away, under the clumsy pretense of bowing his head in supplication. The possessed thing, crouched at the foot of the throne dais, snickered in cruel humour at the sorcerer's discomfort, and its mocking laugh found subtle echoes amongst the watching crowd of courtiers. Cephas's mind seethed with hatred and humiliation, but he choked the feeling back, down within himself. My life and soul for chaos, war master, he managed to stammer out. Tell me what you require me to do, and I will move the stars to fulfill it. The war goes well, intoned Abaddon in his cold, dead voice. But our enemies grow ever more desperate as the tide of battle continues to turn against them. In their desperation... They reach out in search of allies. They must not be allowed to succeed. This is the task we require of you, sorcerer. Hope and relief surged through Cephas. This was more than he had ever dreamed of, and already that aspect within him which belonged to the changer of ways was spinning the first plots and schemes, using visions of the forces and resources which would no doubt be put at his disposal. You honour me! War master, he said, careful to keep out of his voice any hint of what was going on in his mind. What forces will I be given to command in your name? What size of war fleet? How many legions of troops? War fleet? Legions? answered the despoiler, with a mocking edge to his voice. You misunderstand, little sorcerer. The enemies of the false emperor seek allies. But we have found allies of our own. Contact has already been made, and now you and one other will join them as my ambassadors to ensure that their part of the bargain is carried out as I have commanded. Do this thing, and the favour of the great powers will be upon you. Fail, and we will not be so merciful as we have in the past. Cephas's thoughts were a turmoil of confused emotions. To be the War Master's personal envoy was an honour granted to few, but why had he, who had been out of favour for such a dangerously long time, been chosen for this task? Who were these mysterious allies? And what prize could have tempted them to strike a bargain with one as notorious as Abaddon the Despoiler? Cephas risked a glance at the figure of his patron standing to the side of the throne. Zarathustran stood silent and immobile, his face hidden within the shadows of his hood, but Cephas had to suppress a smile as he saw his former master's hand brush casually and haphazardly on the rune-inscribed hem of his robes. To anyone watching, it might have looked like an unconscious gesture, 
but to a student of the Master Chaos Sorcerer, it was a clear signal, communicating much in the placement of the fingers and the gold-threaded rune signs which they briefly touched upon. The thought flashed through Cephas's mind, a warning. There is a trap lying in wait here, but also a great reward for one who can easily bypass it and prove their worth to the War Master. Cephas casually inclined his head, letting Zarephiston know that his warning had been received and understood before replying to the despoiler. Who is to be the other envoy on this mission, War Master? Abaddon smiled thinly and gestured towards the crowd of courtiers. At his command, the crowd instantly parted and a tall, muscular figure in brass and steel armour strode forward, blood and other fluids dripping from the jangling hooked chains embedded into his flesh. It grinned a lipless grin, for much of the original flesh of its face was missing, replaced by a patchwork of dead skin taken from its battle victims, and growled in savage pleasure, raising its inactive chain axe in salute to the figure on the throne. Hanabar of Barker, the War Master said. He will accompany you on this mission. It is my unalterable command that you both fulfil the separate roles I have intended for you. War Master, said Cyphus, bowing again as he pondered this new and most unwelcome twist to events. That there was a double meaning in what the despoiler had said was obvious, but why, of all candidates, would Abaddon have selected the Beast of Barker for this mission? Hanabar was notorious, a mindless animal in human form, and one of the followers of that arch-maniac, Khan the Betrayer. Like Cephas, the cornate berserker champion had seriously fallen from the War Master's favour. He and his legions had been ordered to attack and seize the Imperium mining world of Archilia, with the aim of enslaving its population and turning the outpost into a supply and refit point for the despoiler's warfleets. Instead, the berserker fool had allowed his troops to not only butcher the entire population, but was further unable or unwilling to control them when, their bloodlust unfulfilled, they then fell upon and massacred those contingents of other Chaos troops which had supported them in the initial invasion. The War Master was not slow to show his displeasure. The mines and workshops of Achillea were still manned with an army of slave workers, but it had been Hanabar's own troops who had taken the place of the exterminated civilian population, while Hanabar himself had been banished to the remote fringes of the war where he might learn to tame the worst excesses of his cornate bloodlust. So, thought Cephas, two pariahs, both now summoned back to the heart of the War Master's power. It was surely no coincidence or show of unlikely clemency on the part of Abaddon that both of them had been selected for this mission and Cephas remembered Zarephiston's warning of a hidden trap. He wearily eyed the glowering figure of Hanabar, who, if his mind wasn't empty of all but the usual tedious cornate blood frenzy, was no doubt making similar calculations of his own. Which one of them was the trap for? One or both? What was the War Master's hidden purpose in putting two of them together like this? Cephas decided that more information was urgently needed. These allies you speak of, War Master, who are they, and how will we make ourselves known to them? Again, the figure on the throne smiled in secret amusement and gestured towards his chaos sorcerer. You must be weary after such a long journey from whatever remote part of our domain you have travelled from. Rest and recover some of your strength. Afterwards, when you are ready, 
I have no doubt that our good and loyal Zarafiston will tell you everything you need to know. It was some three weeks after the departure of the two envoys from the War Master's Court that a scout raider craft dropped out of the warp on the edge of a desolate and forgotten star system on the edge of the Cyclops Cluster. It made its way quickly in-system, uh, to take orbit around the system's third innermost planet, a barren rock so insignificant that only the most dedicated of the Imperium's cartographer adepts could have located its details in the vast and still incomplete index of mapped star systems which lay within the Imperium's sprawling and ever-changing borders. A shuttle, black and sinister, dropped from the orbiting ship towards the planet's surface, landing at the point of the precise coordinates given to them days ago and depositing three elite squads of Black Legion Chaos Space Marines on their dead and dusty plane. Two of the squads instantly fanned out to secure the perimeter of the landing zone, while the other began a careful search of the area. It took less than a minute before a voxed shout alerted the squad commander that they had found what they came for. It sat in the middle of a dust-filled crater, a squat, featureless obsidian canister, roughly half a metre high and with no visible seams or means of opening. The planet was barren and airless. No wind or breeze existed to stir the dead dust of the place, and so it was with a feeling of unsettling disquiet that the squad commander noted that the desert surface of the sand remained undisturbed for hundreds of metres all around the canister. Whatever had placed the object there had left no evidence of its passing. With an angry curse, he commanded a marine to run forward and snatch up the canister before he and his squad retreated back toward their waiting shuttle nervously training their weapons on a landscape which had not seen the tread of another living thing in millennia. Less than three minutes after touching down, the shuttle was in the air again, abandoning the world to whatever forgotten ghosts walked upon its dead surface. Six days later, the canister lay on a black marble plinth within the private chambers of Abaddon. The despoiler stood in contemplation of it, secretly marvelling at the chilling alien blankness of the thing. The scabbarded demon blade hanging by his side stirred in disquiet, giving forth a faint psychic rustle of distrust. And Abaddon turned to see Zarephiston, entering the chamber. You sent for me, Warmaster, he purred, with his usual unctuous, too quick to please tone. I assume we have received an answer from our potential new allies. Abaddon gestured at the canister. Open it. The Chaos Sorcerer bowed at the command and stood over the plinth, contemplating the object upon it for a few seconds. Then, with his scaled hands, he made passes over the canister, running his fingers above its featureless surface while whispering words of power. In the dim light of the room, a faint, glowing nimbus of energy became apparent around the object. A few seconds later, a sequence of strange and elaborate rune marks became fleetingly visible there too. Zarephiston's long, nimble fingers moved quickly, following the runes and slightly touching them in a complex sequence only he could follow. With a quiet, rasping hiss, the top of the canister dilated open like the iris of an eye, although there was no visible mechanism involved in the process. An acrid vapour spilled out, tainting the air with a bitter-sweet chemical taste, and beneath that the faint smell of something rotting and organic. Well. What answer have they sent us? asked Abaddon, as Zarephiston, 
reached into the canister and removed its contents. The severed and perfectly preserved head of Hanabar of Barker dangled there. The circumstances of his death written there in the frozen expression of agony etched into his cryogenically preserved features. However, the cornate berserker had died. It had neither been quick nor easy. That much was plain to see. Abaddon smiled at the sight of the gruesome, missive object. Excellent. Then their answer is yes. Well, there you have it. The end of part one. Thank you all for watching. Please do give the video a like. Subscribe if you're not subscribed. Let me know in the comments what you think. The rest of them will be coming thick and fast. I do hope you enjoy what's to come. Uh, if you'd like to support the channel, become a YouTube member, become a Patreon, or over on Subscribestar, whatever suits you, if you would like to assist. Otherwise, uh, yeah, like I say, like, subscribe, bloody bloody blah. Let me know in the comments. All these things help with uh, the YouTube algorithm. And if you're listening to the podcast version, uh, thank you all very much. And do like it, give the stars, or whatever it is, however you do that on the pod, whichever pod. It's on all the podcasts. I don't know. I don't know which one you're on. All right. Thank you all very much for watching again. Thanks very much. Next one's coming soon. And uh, don't worry, Maxim Barossa is not very far away. Ta-ra!